0: All right, so what do we got? We got episode number 39 today, Sports Like MDs podcast. And we got special treats today for this episode. This is a very important episode, an important string of episodes, actually. So today, we're going to introduce the newest member of the Sports Like MDs. And that's Benjamin Vogel, our program manager.
1: What's going on, guys?
0: Yep, here he is. We got him on. Yeah, Um, So he's going to be, he's part of the conversation now. He's going to be focusing on our social media presence, but he's also much more than that. Uh, he's reaching out. He's one of us, essentially. He's part of the so team. He's a PA instead of an MD. Yeah. So he a so major in psychology, minor in economics at Binghamton.
1: SUNY Binghamton is uh, a school. SUNY
0: Binghamton. Upstate uh, New York. Right. Oh, come, he's coming in live from New York. So now we have, we're bi coastal sports yeah, like these are.
1: Yeah. Now I'm in hand Back in my home.
0: Yeah. So he joined us a few weeks back he's got experience working with student athletes. You were a tutor, tutored some student athletes at Binghamton and you're on the path now to become, you want to become a sports psychologist. Yeah. Looking at PhD programs.
1: Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to continue my work with sports like MDs
0: uh, for however
1: long. Um, And then when time comes, I'm going to take my GREs and start applying to, Sports psychology PhD programs, maybe personality psychology PhD programs. Oh, yeah, figure it out
0: as um as time progresses.
2: Absolutely, and we're gonna hopefully be an inspiration for that. Definitely, that's good stuff. Yeah,
0: and Ben definitely um, he embodies everything we've talked about. That, that whole being able to be mindful, being able to be grateful, confident, passionate He's passionate, driven. He's hardworking, obviously. Um and he's resilient, so we're happy to have him on the team. Yeah, man. Um, unfortunately, he, he is a diehard Yankees <laughs> fan, but that's fine. We'll, we'll deal that's with very, that. Yeah, no, Ben
2: Ben's great. He uh, he reached out to us on LinkedIn, um as kind of a fan of the show. He mentioned his you know background in psychology, which he received a degree from Binghamton University, and you know he he told us, look, um I love what, what you guys do. I I I love the message you guys are delivering. And, you know, anything I can do to, to kind of help out or, you know, be a support, he, call it, he called himself a utility player. And I said, man, you know, um, with that kind of energy and that kind of enthusiasm, like, you know, we have to talk. So, you know, Tori and I got on an interview with him and, you know, it became pretty apparent from the start that, you know, we had a, a guy in Ben with the, the type of integrity and the leadership and the commitment to service you know, that we, uh, we look for uh, not just in sports like MDs, but you know, in medicine and healthcare and psychology uh, as a profession in general. So um, we're not just excited, but also very fortunate to have Ben joining us. And um, I think he's gonna be an amazing addition and contribution to uh, this ongoing conversation.
1: Yeah, and likewise, it really goes both ways. Uh, honestly, the way I, the way this whole happened was earlier this year, my mom promised me, like, you're going to graduate in May. You're not allowed back in this house without a job, so don't bother coming home without a job. <laughs> so it was around, like, March, around March time, COVID hit, so classes were canceled. And I was like, shoot, I don't have a job. I was listening to Sports like MDs, and you guys are freaking awesome. Talk, talk about sports and psychology. Those are my two favorite things to talk about. And I was like, you know what? Let me just shoot them an email. I think I can help them out in a few areas. I had noticed their social media. Like, I think I can help them out with that. I think I can help them reach out to players and coaches and whatnot. Let's see what happens. I've been rejected before. <laughs> not, 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 not the biggest deal. Since one out. Dr. Hose responded, and that was, a pretty, that was a pretty cool moment. And you guys have been nothing but great mentors ever since. So looking Very forward wonderful. to continuing working here.
0: I like that little story. I like how uh, your mom uh, she essentially put your back against the wall, and you had to do something. So sometimes you need a little tough love in that holding environment, and we're mm. we're glad to have you. And you're you're eager, and you're you're a hard worker, and it's already paid off. What we have on store for you guys is a lot of interviews with NFL athletes, with mental health professionals working with big time organizations with minor league baseball players, with international boxers. So we got a lot in store, and we're, we're excited to have been on. And this is episode number 39. Uh, we start off by just having a, a brief conversation about kind of the interplay between being a mental health provider, social justice, because that's something we're fighting for in sports, and how that all, all comes together. So we have a brief discussion about that, and then we hop into the interview with Jermaine Ingram Jr., the recent seventh-round draft pick of the Los Angeles Rams, and a two-time national champion coming out of Clemson. So hope you guys enjoy absolutely do you, feel Let's go. Me? Do, do you feel me do you feel me do you feel me
2: do you feel me yeah you know and I think what makes sports psych MDs in particular a little bit different and maybe a cut above the rest is that we also try really hard to understand the impacts of, of not just our own biology, uh, not just our own like kind of family experiences and and developmental experiences, and not just the impacts of you know our health in general. But we try to think about like how community and you know social justice related issues affect uh, athletes and affect you know sports figures more broadly, and it. And it and there's no doubt that they are big. I mean, that's what we got a lot of, out of, I think, with today's interview with Tremaine was just like, he immediately, when I we talked about the Black Lives Matter movement, we talked about police brutality, we talked about the pandemic, he immediately had a very strong message that he wanted to deliver. It clearly mm-hmm. had a big impact on yeah, him.
0: Yeah, I, I love that question that you asked him. And his response was great, because you did, you threw a lot, a lot at him at once, and
1: yeah, he, he was. He,
0: he was able to like break it down and answer the first part. Yeah, and you could tell that he's extremely passionate about wellness, mental health, but yeah, God, extremely passionate about social justice. And I think he we're going to keep hearing from this guy in the future, man. He's got a great head on his shoulders, and yeah. Um, so yeah, I think along those lines, what you're talking about, Armand was, you have to take into account like all of these different social issues that are going on. Obviously this social ju- justice movement right now is affecting everyone and certain individuals more so than others. And you have to be aware of that when you're providing someone with mental health treatment, but that's, uh, I was having this conversation with my fiance or I guess my wife now. Um, but we were talking about how, or I was talking about how we're fortunate enough with all this going on, all these social injustices, but everyone wants to fight for equality and justice for everyone. And I think we're fortunate, Armin and I, and then even you, Ben, you're going into this field that we don't necessarily have to, I mean, it's great if we do it outside of our job in our day-to-day life. I think that's what we want everyone to do, but that's kind of built into our jobs, um, the ability to fight for social justice and equality. Yeah. That's something we we do every day. Yes, um, do. That's, that's part of like the mission statement of being a psychiatrist, a mental health provider is providing justice. Yeah. That's one of our Ethical codes, justice. So, and we're providing need to a vulnerable population of individuals. We've been working in the county, so we're working with a lot of people of color, a lot of Black individuals. And if we always keep those things in mind, we're going to be able to push forward the social justice and equality message through our individual interactions, but also through kind of our systems of care. Because we have a seat at the table when it comes to providing mental health care to our communities. Um, And I I, I was talking about that in the day in like the context of people, I think who have jobs, otherwise maybe like in advertising or finance can't directly do it in their job. Um, Obviously being able to hire more individuals of color and promote them within your company is, is certainly a way of going about it. But we actually have an opportunity to, when we're treating individuals um, and we're creating systems of care, to directly provide change and, and provide that equality for yeah, individuals it, 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 um, and treat them like That's
2: beautiful, man. And, and you, I, I love that you uh, brought up the term justice, not just as something we talk about as a sales pitch, but also as something that we promote as one of our core values in medicine. And in order for justice to really work you know, the way that it should in order to benefit all people from all backgrounds, is that it really has to be a situation where we understand authentically how all of the communities that we we treat um, how how they are you know culturally and you know how they are in terms of their values, you know what's important to them, you know, we should understand their stories, we should understand their struggles. If we're you know providing, this level of care, then these are things that we shouldn't just be familiar with, we should actually kind of have an expertise in. And I hopefully that's like the next 10 to to 20 years of mental health is not just becoming stronger technologically, like the other specialties, but also becoming, um, I think, just more adept in terms of our social intellect as a field and social sort of um, currency, frankly, with within, uh, you know, communities of color. Uh, we should be the last specialty mm-hmm. that have issues with health disparities, you know, because we should be the ones that are leading the, the way in terms of creating these connections, you know, these social yeah. bonds
0: with our patient populations. Yep. And we have a dark, I mean, psychiatry does have a dark past. We have evidence that if, if you're black, you're more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia versus if you're white, you're more likely to be diagnosed with bipolar if you have like a psychotic episode. And Um, Bipolar carries less of a stigma than schizophrenia. So that's something that can be corrected and, and we're aware of. I think ultimately what we have, being psychiatrists, mental health professionals, we have the advantage of actually connecting with our patients on a deeper level than I think most other physicians have time to do. I think family doctors obviously get this opportunity as well, but we get to know the patient's deepest, darkest secrets, their vulnerabilities. So we can really, and we're not, we don't have an agenda to like push certain messages, although we can try to help each individual, regardless of their race or color, um, kind of let down their guard, get at truly like what's going on with them. And through that kind of process, I think ultimately you're going to be able to align any individual with this kind of mission that we have of equality and justice for all. I think if you take down you kind of strip back all the different layers. And we talked about this in in different podcasts, like we all share similar value sets. And I think through our our encounters with individuals that we see in our offices or over Zoom, I think that can only help everyone on both sides of the political spectrum, if you will, because a lot of things come to political wise, come to some sort of understanding, yeah. more awareness of their self. Yeah. And through that, just more empathy. Like Absolutely. empathy is something that we always try to huge work with. It's huge.
1: Dr. Ho is in the confidence interval that you sent us. Just This speaks exactly to what you just said before. And this is what I like the most. Um, but like one thing I actually wanted to text you is how much I love like the overlap between, between psychology and what I learned in school. And one thing I've learned about how people work is that things are a lot easier said than done. But one of the most important things you need to do is being able to just understand your own beliefs and your own perception. You need to take a step back and understand how do I perceive the world specifically? How do I perceive people that are different than me? And like, it's it's very understandable why you grow up and you have different value sets than people that grew up different than you. Yeah. Like that's just how, I think, tell me what you guys think yeah. as a psychiatrist. I feel like that's kind of how humans yeah. are programmed. Like, we, we kind of gravitate towards relatability. Yeah. The more closer we are, the more we gravitate. So one of the most important things is being able to take a step back, which is hard, and say, okay, how do I perceive person X? Why do I perceive person X? And what can I do to switch that? Or, like, kind of align that with the truth. Because often, oftentimes our beliefs – as you said, uh, Dr. Ho, is in the confidence interval. Oftentimes, our beliefs don't line up with the truth, and that's mm-hmm. okay as long as we address that and we work with it. That's a thing. I think that's in session six or seven, but that's one of the, my favorite parts of the confidence interval. That's great
0: because I think it speaks directly towards if you have an individual and they're able to develop mindfulness, they're able to develop resilience. They do gratitude practices. They're a grateful person, and they're confident, secure in who they are then that individual is much more likely to be empathetic and they're much more likely to be able to see someone without being clouded by these preconceived notions they had through childhood or all these different emotions or or fear, because oftentimes fear is something that presidents or political parties like to use to, to galvanize their sides. They're, they're going to see the picture a lot more clearly and they're more likely to, to treat someone else how they would wanna be treated yeah. when they're able to achieve all those kind of pillars that we've talked ad nauseum about.
2: Yeah, man, for sure. Um, and uh, you know, I think this isn't a political show, but I, I do have to, to pay respect to uh, former President Obama in terms of really delivering a pretty consistent message that I think really people can all kind of connect with to understand why this matters and why this works. It's a narrative of recognizing that while we all have different individual values, um, you know, and unique holding environments, you know unique backgrounds and experiences and legacies in terms of you know our, our genealogies, at the end of the day, um, there are certain core values that you know at least all good people, right, share and have in common. And most of this country, I think the vast majority of this country, are all good people, right? And- I just wanna work hard and have it pay off. Absolutely, have it, yeah, work hard and, and have that, that hard work really translate for them and their families, their loved ones, you know, into success.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think when you can help people relate to those those values that, that are very similar. I mean, you know, when I started the academy, for example, I was so different than anyone else around me that I was training with in basic training. Um, But we came together in a matter of days, really, as a family, you know, a bunch of people that really uh, had each other's backs in a major way. And that's just because they kind of stripped us down and made us realize that, like, you know, we all have the same mission, the same goal. And in order to accomplish it, we're going to have to work together. And so we figured it out pretty quickly. And I realized that that's kind of a a microcosm for, for life. Like when you have struggles that affect everyone, like this pandemic, You know, you realize that very quickly we all have, you know, pretty similar values. And so, a program like this, and and ultimately, sports like MD, sports psychiatry, um, everything we're doing here, is really about bringing out all of those things, uh, putting them on on the table, and then having a conversation about it. And hopefully, we can all rally around that. You know, and I'll say to the point that Tori made about us as psychiatrists and what we can bring is. Not just our value system as a profession, but there's something so powerful about the confidence. You mentioned confidence interval, about a confidential relationship, right? One on one that you can have with another person, you know, who's not interested in judging you or necessarily making you someone you're not or making you anything different than what you are, really. And ultimately someone that you know their sole purpose is to help make you you know the best person you can be you know i think there's it's a very powerful relationship to have and especially when you have a person that also has a level of expertise in terms of medical science um understanding the body holistically in addition to the psychology i think it can be transformative in a a variety of ways so that's what we're about you know and that's what we got to keep promoting
0: Man, man, I think it's a great transition to being able. To, you mentioned Armin being in the Air Force Academy. They stripped you down. You saw your your what do they call comrades or fellow? Uh, uh, basic cadets. Basic, <laughs> basic cadets okay. is what we were at the time. You and your <laughs> you and your basic cadets. They stripped you down, and you were all realized that hey, we're all here for the same reason. We're all here for the common good. We're all on, on the same mission together. And that translates to life, but it also translates to team sports. And one of the individuals we interviewed today, and you guys will hear it. I'm excited for it. Is uh, Jermaine Ingram Jr. He uh, recent, actually, seventh round draft pick by the Los Angeles Rams out here in LA. Uh, we're glad to have him out here uh, for the Rams. Yeah. He was an offensive tackle at Clemson. Yeah, um, went to the playoff all, all four years in college. Won two championship titles. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. And yeah. everyone knows Clemson football. It's 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 above Alabama at this point in some circles. Um so yeah, we had him on the show today. And when I was doing some research on him, there's a quote from Dabo Sweeney that I saw. He said, This is a guy that can change a locker room from a leadership standpoint. And after talking to him, I agree. Absolutely. He he embodies everything we talk about with regards to resilience. Gratitude, that work ethic that he talks about, is starting from day one, he kind of just put his head down and worked, and he turned negatives into positive, challenges into learning experiences. And I'm looking forward to you guys hearing this. Oh yeah, solid guy, uh, solid guy.
2: Um, you know, I, I'm obviously not a you know a football scout, but uh, I think the Rams got a good one there. I, got, I think they got a great one actually when you think about a person that can come in and you know be a leader in the locker room like no matter what happens you know with with his career in terms of whatever statistics you know whatever you know sort of longevity i know that if you have a strong leader especially a young leader in the locker room he's gonna he's gonna be a game changer he's gonna be someone that has immediate impact
0: yeah everything we've read about him in our discussion with him this this is someone who who's going to succeed off the football field as well. And he sounds like he has great relationships with his family, um, his past teammates. And this is someone who I think wants to be a voice, a leader in in social justice change
2: too. So that's... Absolutely, man. That's so important right now. There's a reason why he was
1: voted permanent team captain, Mike Clemson. (laughs)
2: Permanent team captain. Oh, yeah. That's great. Well, you know, and, and what I saw in him was a certain poise, a certain confidence, uh, a certain resolve. And you could tell it was all very genuine, very sincere, very uh, high IQ guy, you know, his, his ability to think through things. Um, and he provided some, really some answers that I think far exceeded my expectations just given his age uh, and his level of you know life experience. So I was, I was impressed.
0: Yeah. It's not often you get someone, an individual who can do it all on the field, like be a leader on the field through his actions. Um, But, but also being able to step up this first time we were talking to him and just have that conversation, be open and honest, the self-awareness he has all these different things that he's, he's developed throughout these years. Thanks to sounds like a strongholding environment and great work ethic. And obviously going through a program like Clemson that only solidified everything that was already there as his foundation. And now he's with a great organization, the LA Rams. And I, I'll Tell you what, uh, this will probably be the next episode we release. But that'll be we had an interview with uh, speaking of the LA Rams, they have a sports psychologist who leads their mental health program. She is their mental health program, and that was Dr. Uh, Carrie Hastings. So, yeah, guys, I'm, I'm super excited about what we have in store uh, over the next couple of weeks. But let's go ahead and jump into the interview with the young gentleman, Tremaine Ingram Jr. Do, do you feel? Now we have Jermaine Ingram Jr., a recent seventh round draft pick from the LA Rams, joining us today on the Sports Like MDs podcast. Welcome, welcome, Glad sir. To be here. Thanks for having me. So, how did it feel to get drafted?
3: Man, it was uh, it was a lot of mixed emotions. Honest to God, I, um, I I never I didn't really know what was going to happen. You know, because obviously the draft isn't the end of the world. But it's a real important step for all football players. So, you know, I knew I wasn't like a first round, first day one pick, right? Um, but I thought, you know, my body at work was good enough to get me kind of like day two, early day three. Um, so, like, everybody was calling me and it's like, yo, what's going on? What happened? You know, why didn't you get picked up real hot? I was like, I don't know. But then, like, at the end, I kind of got, I finally got the call. And it was, uh, it was kind of a, a moment of relief. It was a sigh. And I was like, man, like all that work wasn't for nothing, right? Like it was, you know, it was worth it.
2: Absolutely, man. And uh, I mean, you were you were uh, trained by, you know, one of the greatest head coaches in the in game right over there at Clemson, Mr. Sweeney, um, what would you say? You know, having a, a coach like that, h- how did that prepare you for the next level? <laughs> I think it gave me a leg up in, in like a, in a competition
3: standpoint because, you know, when you play at Clemson, you play at the highest level, right? You play at where everybody wants to be at. You play where you know, the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the Clemson, you know, you come to Clemson to play these games, right? And it was like an everyday thing where you had to bring your game face. You had to always be on 10. I'm talking about in the weight room. I'm talking about in the training room, classroom, everywhere. Like, Everything went against you or for you. So you had to compete all day, every day, in every
0: facet. And it, and you're a two-time national champion, so it paid off while you were there. Uh, it was okay, yeah. <laughs> did you guys make the playoffs all four years you were there? I was in the playoffs, yes. That's incredible. Oh, man. So you obviously learned a lot while you were there, but I was doing a little scouting on you as well. So your, your father played college basketball at USC? He did, he did. So was sports always a big focus in your family growing up? Yeah,
3: definitely. Um, you know, my father was a big sports fanatic because he thought sports was a microcosm of life, right? It can teach you lessons that you can take in other areas and really apply it to yourself and anything you do. So sports was always something big growing up.
0: Nice. Was uh, football always your first love or did you play other sports growing up?
3: <laughs> no, nah,
0: I played basketball and football majorly. And then I
3: had a little baseball in there, and it was just really boring. I was like, yeah, this ain't for me, man. Nah.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you had your pick of, you know, the litter when it came to to different college programs. What what made Clemson stand out as the one for you? Uh, Clemson was just super genuine. Like, everything they did, I mean,
3: obviously, they, you know, they could have flaunted their enormous success on the football field and, you know, all the rings and trophies, but a lot of that was superficial, you know, a lot of that stuff was kind of there, but with the real things that kind of made the program what it was, was the people, was the genuineness, was the, the you know, focus on you being a better man, a better student in all facets of your life. Um, because, you know, the football take care of itself, right? The Management's more important. Um, and just the overall focus right. on getting better every day and always striving for excellence, that's that's something that enticed mm-hmm. me, right? And everybody else gave me the same song and dance cow so Cal, uh, Georgia, I mean, Colorado, like everybody
0: gave me the same song and dance, but something felt different
3: uh, with Clemson. Something felt really different.
2: Yeah, man, I love that.
0: So I'm interested, you, you mentioned your, your father was telling you about all the life skills you can learn in football. What are some of the biggest things you've learned um, through sports, through playing football?
3: I learned that, you know, nothing is ever given. Always have to strive for and work hard for everything you you want in your life. Um, you know, welcome adversity. Welcome with open arms because that's, that's, that's when you reveal your character, who you really are. And you need people, you know? You need people to succeed. There's no such thing as a self-made man at all. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for, you know, my friends and my family and my coaches, trainers and everybody that really invested in me, you know, No investment was too little, no one was too big. You know, everything really works for my good. And that's what I'm grateful for. And that's something sports has taught me not I care over anything. Um, You need people to succeed.
2: No doubt. And and it seems like when I look at uh, your your athletic background, you focus primarily on team sports rather than individual sports. Was there something about, you know, being in in a group that you contribute to that was more enticing than, let's say, individual competition?
3: Yeah, I mean, I was always a team player. I was never the one that like required all the you know all the attention, all the praise. Um, I was always kind of a role player. You know, find my role and be great at it. Uh, find what I do best and excel at that, um, and really just helping other people. You know, I was always a supporter. I was always a good protector, and that's in anything. I was in my life with my sisters and my friends. Um, I never really looked for the shine. I was more of a blue collar, let's go to work kind of guy. And that's just, you know, team sports really appealed to that.
0: Absolutely. See, so you mentioned you have some sisters. How many sisters do you have? I have two sisters and one stepbrother. One stepbrother, awesome. Awesome. And I imagine you, it sounds like you're close to your family.
3: Absolutely, they're everything to me.
0: So everything you've described up to this point, you're, you're kind of laying the foundation of resilience. And it certainly sounds like that's something that you definitely have. And that's kind of led you to where you're at today.
3: No, resilience is everything. Because, you know, there's nothing in life that comes to you without adversity. Everybody has their problems. Everybody has their issues. Every family, every team. And your ability to deal with that and keep going, not just surviving, but thriving, is, you know, a cornerstone of
0: life. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, when do you think in a point in your life where your, the resilience was tested, um, what was, like, one of the most toughest times?
3: Toughest times for me, I mean, honest to God, my sophomore year of college was pretty, pretty tough. Just from the standpoint of like, I had to, I was splitting time with another guy that I felt I was better than, Um, you know, I was trying to grow into my new body and trying to figure that out. And obviously in the school, I was changing majors. I went from geology to business. So trying to find my way in the world. And, you know, it was tough because you weren't really sure if you were doing the right thing. You weren't really sure if, you know, all the work you had put in all these years was worth it, and you just kind of you know trying to find your sense of identity, and trying to find out you know where in the world am I going to get? Where in the world am I going to get the strength to keep going? Um, you know, sophomore year was challenging. I had a lot of tough tests, but even through my failures in that year, I, I feel like I grew, and that's what kind of put me up to the success I have now.
2: Yeah, you know we're a we're a team of psychiatrists. Um, so we're all about, you know, mental health and conditioning, the, you know, the, the mental aspect of the game, um, you know, and, and resilience, we believe, is, is kind of the, the key to performing at a high level um, when you think about, you know, the mental aspect of the game. As far as your walk and your journey, how has, you know, being mentally fit helped you kind of get through certain challenges you've had off the field and on the field?
3: Honest to God, it's, it's been my it's been my strength and everything. I mean, you know, they look at me and you mm-hmm. look on paper and you look at my measurables and it's like, oh, he looks like an average guy. Like I could be this guy, right? And you're right. <laughs> you know, you you could honestly be me because I remember I started out in high school. I was 200 pounds, soaking wet. Like, ugh. You know, <laughs> I mean, obviously I had I had gifts from my parents, right? I mean, I had you know certain athletic abilities that were pretty good, but for the most part, it's been a mental battle for me. Um, it's been you know, the belief in yourself, the belief in the work, and understanding that you need to listen and learn. It's it's that mental battle that you have with yourself every day, not just the people in front of you or the task that's at hand, but it's the mental battle you have with yourself. And once I figured out that there's nothing that I'm gonna go through that I can't get through, right? Once I kind of established that in my head, um, there was nothing that was gonna stop me from being successful, and I was in whatever.
0: Not just sports, but life. That's awesome. So it sounds like you had that like internal drive to to succeed and overcome, and you looked at every challenge as as a learning opportunity. Which that's that's so valuable and important. And people can see like the physical challenges you face when they watch you on on Saturdays play at Clemson, I imagine. But no one really can see the, those mental challenges like you mentioned. I'm curious because we interviewed a former offensive lineman for Boise State a few months back, and he mentioned he had to gain like sixty pounds. It's, freshman, sophomore year at college. Did you have to put, you mentioned you had to go through some body changes your sophomore year. Did you have to put on an immense amount of weight? Yeah, man. <laughs> I,
3: again, like I came into college, I, I came into college at like 260, man.
0: So, mm-hmm. you know, imagine
3: this guy walking in and he's kind of, I'm, I'm a lengthy guy too. So people are like, Oh, you're the newest tight end. <laughs> you're the new DM? I'm like, uh, not, not, not quite. Right. <laughs> like, and, you know, obviously, you want to be bigger and stuff, but like eating is tough, man. Like that's a that's a whole mental game in itself. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't want to feel fat, or you don't want to overeat and get too big. And sometimes they're telling you to eat more than you physically can. You feel like throwing up. So, you know that the, that mental part of being an offensive lineman is rough. Not many people understand it. It's 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 tough. We're a unique kind of athlete that takes, shoot, it takes a round-the-clock management. You know, yeah. it's, it's a tough, it's a tough, it's a tough thing.
0: Yeah, For sure. I imagine. So you mentioned before you leaned on your teammates a lot. You really thrive in that team environment, but being on the off- offensive line, I imagine that's a team within a team and you guys are all pretty close going through all those similar things together.
3: Mm-hmm. That, that, that offensive lineman bond is special. It's unlike anything in the, uh, in the sporting world. I mean, we're, we, our job, is, you know, all blame, no praise, right? We're the first to get blamed, the last to get praised, and that's that's in anything. And if a defensive man has a good day, if he has one or two sacks, average, <laughs> average day, we got 80 plays. <laughs> you know, the margin <laughs> of error is real small. That's
2: true. Criticism is real high,
3: and you got to take it in stride, man. You got to take it as a, uh, as a real man, and that's one of the toughest things that i had to understand is not offensive alignment isn't something that you you do right cuz you see a lot of big guys on defense and you see a lot of these guys that can really go out and make plays they play different positions you know being an offensive lineman is more so who you are right you got to have that i'm going to come to work i'm going to be resilient you know no matter how good this guy is in front of me you know if he makes one play i got to get back on my horse um and it's a mind game right like it's a chess match you know, you may have you may get him the next five plays and he gets you one. You can't let that one play mess you up for the rest of the game. And that's when you depend on those four or five yeah. guys in your line and they say that they got you, no matter if the challenge is never too big for the whole group.
2: You know, and speaking of which, um, I can imagine it being kind of a, a tough a tough challenge for you guys, especially if there's a, a skilled player like a running back or a quarterback you're supposed to protect where there's conflict between you guys, where maybe you're not really, you know, fully buying into their leadership style, you know, or maybe you guys have some sort of off the field kind of issue. You know, how do you guys kind of rally around those kinds of of personal conflicts that happen? To a certain extent, you kind of got to compartmentalize um,
3: things that kind of happen, right? You know, somebody, something happens off the field, you can't let it affect you too much on the field because it's not just affecting you and the guy it's affecting a hundred other people, right? It's affecting the whole organization. So you, you're going to have yeah. to suck it up. You know, you're going to work with people you don't like or their viewpoints or whatever. And you're just going to have to go through it. Right. Even if the quarterbacks messing up, right? Like a quarterback can miss five open throws and you know, it's all right. He's good. A uh, lineman missed five open blocks. <laughs> he ain't got a job. <laughs> He's a, uh, He's done for, but, you know, and that's when that's that off-the-field bond is so important, right? Like football such a mental part. You communicating with your quarterback, you understanding how he leads and his intentions and his tone and all of that while he's in the heat of the battle, you really got to understand that off the field before you understand it on the field, and that's kind of the important thing.
0: Were you a team captain at Clemson?
2: I was, yes. All right. I, I
0: figured that. I could tell, <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> I could tell. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, I wanted to know, like, was there any wellness programs geared towards mental health uh, at Clemson while you were there? Yes, absolutely. We
3: had a, we had a great team psychiatrist and uh, Dr. Milk. We had every every Thursday it was our moment with Milk. And he, he worked on, like, a, he was a performance psychiatrist, sports performance psychiatrist. And he helped us kind of get ready for the moment, understand everything that goes with you know, competing and performing all week long, um, and the build-up to the game—what to do with our emotions—and uh, it's tough. The, the psyche of a student athlete is, is really complex and really difficult to understand. So, it's, it was a, it was an uphill battle all all my time there for me, especially and all my brothers and sisters that play sports there. Uh, but Clemson did a good job of getting us resources that we could use, and even some third-party resources that we didn't feel like going to you know, the ones provided by the team because obviously, okay. you know, the coaching conflict and your conflict can be, you know, kind of messy. Um, so they gave us good resources like that. But yeah, Clemson had, Clemson had a good program for
0: me. Great. Like that. that's, that's extreme. Everyone we talk to, it's so valuable to be able to have somewhere separate to go away from the team, just in case you want that privacy, you want that confidentiality. Yeah. So I, I'm glad that you guys had that. Um, I was wondering any specific strategies you use like deep breathing or imagery for like during games or before games, any, any type of things you learned along the way that you like to implement into your practice?
3: Yeah. Uh, For me, I'll have to, I have to do a checklist, right? Cause for me, I have to feel like I deserve to win every rep. So I have to do a certain amount of work extra on the side. Once I get that, that I mentally know that, Hey, I know I'm ready. I know I'm ready to dominate. Um, I used to have to, like, hype myself up and, like, you know, get into that moment and get into that mood, but then I kind of understood, like, hey, I play my best football when I'm relaxed, right, when I'm being myself, right, because I feel like when I was tense up, I used to be afraid to make mistakes. I wasn't playing free. I learned how to relax. I, uh, you know, I changed my playlist up. I added a few R&B songs instead of, you know – Metallica and 21 Savage, right? Like I added different ones in there just to kind of relax myself. Um, And then I hate to say it like this, but I I turned my attitude to be a little more casual, right? It's intense, but it's, it's, it feels more casual, right? It's just another day at work. Once you do that, once you establish your mind, that it's the same as you do in practice. It's the same as you do in the game. It's just this, right? So people are like, yo, Trey, how do you turn it on when it comes to game time? I just look like I'm already turned on,
2: right? (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, man. I I was curious to know, um, just because, you know, obviously there's a lot going on right now in society, you know, within our communities, related to, you know, social injustices. And, you know, obviously the uh, the NFL, as with many professional sports organizations, um, you know, there's a preponderance of athletes from, you know, black and brown communities. Um, And obviously folks that really care about these things, to what extent uh, have have these issues, you know, the the global pandemic, uh, you know, the police brutality issues, to what extent has this affected you personally and maybe members of the organization, the Rams organization there? And uh, in what ways have the Rams, or as an organization, helped you guys to kind of come together and address some of these things?
3: Wow, that was a lot. Um, <laughs> well, from from the standpoint of COVID nineteen, you know, we understand that this is this is much bigger than anything, much bigger than all of us, right? This is it's a global pandemic that is putting put yeah. people's lives on pause, right? Like I was upset, like man, I wish we had the draft there, I wish we had you know visits and this this, but I gotta understand, like you know, my individual wants and needs can't supersede what the world needs right now, what everybody else needs. Um, you know, we had to handle that with some grace and some care and understand that, hey, this is this is much bigger than me. Um, you know, the Rams have responded right. And, you know, they've been supporting the community and you know, putting out the right things. Um, and it's tough. You know, a lot of athletes are like, hey, I'm not reporting for this amount of time, especially in college. and You know, some of the pro guys I know, like, I'm not reporting for another this that and third so they kind of slack off right hey that's that's tough when when you know you're not going to work for a while some people can take that as a tendency to break habits break rhythms break you know things that they do often and you know that's tough and some people can you know i know family members and friends that lost jobs and that's tough to even think about right like people's lives are really being changed that's hard to think about. You know, you keep the hope. You stay positive with people. You send things of encouragement. and you, you know, motivate people to do better every day, right? You check your people. You see they slipping. Hey, man, get back on your horse. What are you doing? It's not what you're supposed to be doing. This, that and the third, right? Um, and as far as, like, you know, the police brutality thing, um, we, we could have a whole another discussion about that, but,
2: <laughs> I know, man. I know. As far
3: as, you know, the ramps have been really good. I remember Coach McVeigh stopped at the time meeting to talk about that issue. He opened up the floor and everybody spoke to mind. We got it all out. You know, certain people, you know, took initiative and like started staying some things and like get this going and it really was just a, a mirror, right? Let's let's take a moment and look in the mirror and see how we can all do better and, you know, whether it be listening, whether it be action, whether it be this, that, and the third to just take a moment and do better because this is a problem that We've all known about, we've all dealt with, um, especially in the black and brown community for sure. Um, but now since the world has stopped, we've been able to take a closer look at it and really start to listen and hear how people have felt, how things have been going, right? I mean, even even in the South, like when they talk about Confederate flags, like that's 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 hurtful, you know? That's like if I was a Jewish person and they had the swastika out there, like and I'm a football player in the South. And that's something I just have to look at and deal with and not really say anything because you're afraid to lose your position. You're afraid to lose, you know, how much you work for. Some people speak up and they lose their life. So, you know, as black and brown people, we've been conditioned not to say anything about it and to just take it. And, you know, hopefully we can get by and survive. Um, but now that, you know, there's been much more of a social push for it, I think that everybody feels more supported now. And, know we're willing to listen and it's it's not even a black and white problem anymore it's more so a, a system of oppression versus people right it's the people that are going to find themselves on which side of the line you know do you believe in in people having human rights and do you believe that you know the things that they're saying are real and you got to open up your eyes and see that kind of thing
2: yeah no i appreciate your words on that man it was very powerful and also very grateful for the Rams to to be addressing these things. And it, it sounds like it's really helped the team come together in a powerful way, a way that hopefully will help you guys collectively down the road and into this new season that we're all very excited to, to see. Yeah, man, we hope, man. I hope there's a football season. <laughs> yeah, we hope so too, buddy, for sure.
0: All right, so um, just kind of, I guess, to wrap up, it sounds like You've developed this, this resilience throughout your lifetime. You've developed this amazing awareness kind of of your, you mentioned before how you play better when you're more relaxed. I wanted to just ask briefly, is that something you figured out in high school, college? When did you figure that out? Um,
3: you know, it's kind of started in high school when I, um, you know, I was a little run on the team. I didn't really have, much say so I was you know I got my butt kicked a lot I didn't feel like I'd been there. Um, I had confidence issues I didn't know what I was going to be right um, but then after a few you know a few years of you know getting your butt kicked taking a lot of L's but still coming back right like my whole thing was like I'm not going to stop coming I'm going to keep coming back whether I get put down 30 times I'm going to get up 31 right um, I got stronger every day and one day it just kind of clicked like hey I had a little success and once i seen just a little success just a little bit of positive i was like i can i can do this and not just this football but like this whatever right and then you know in college it just all steps up a little bit more more self-realization more self-awareness what you got to do what kind of person you are uh, what you're good at what you're not and that goes into anything you go against right and I haven't really figured it all out. You know, I still struggle with some things, you know, mentally, emotionally that I've, you know, sometimes repressed or just buried myself in my work or something like that. And I'm, I'm still working work in progress trying to figure it all out. But, you know, the adversity in my life and all my areas has just made me the man I am today
0: and hopefully build for a better tomorrow. Well, I, f- I feel like there's, there's no doubt that you'll continue to grow as an individual if you continue to have that mindset. Sounds like you've always been able to rely on that, that hard work and that that work ethic and kind of pushing through. That'll serve you well off the football field, and I'm sure it has. It sure has, man. We'll see. You know, I'll start making money, then then we'll see if it works. <laughs> Did you always want to play in the NFL? Was that like your, your goal, one of your goals? No, not at all. I, I, if you would have told 16-year-old Tremaine that he's
3: playing in the NFL, he might have laughed at you and been like, "What?" Yeah. But, you know, once I realized I could do it, I was like, God gave me the ability shoot, you know?
2: Oh, man. Well, look, man, you've uh, you made your, your family extremely proud. Obviously, the community that raised you, extremely proud. Uh, L.A. is extremely fortunate to have you here. Um, we look forward to your ongoing service and, uh, and leadership.
3: Appreciate that, brother. I appreciate y'all having me as well.
0: How do you like living out in L.A.? Is this your first time out here?
3: Yeah, man. I actually, you know, I've only been out here not, you know, a day, literally. So,
0: <laughs> welcome. I'm, I'm getting
3: acclimated before, before camp and all that stuff. And, you know, I might see you guys around, you know?
0: Yeah, man, stay in touch. We hope so. We'll definitely be rooting for you. So uh, thanks for joining us. No problem, man. Y'all good. You too.